So I I was telling your mom, this is like an introductory podcast for people. A lot of young people listen to it. We have homeschool parents that play it for their kids or they have um, like charter schools have used it. We're trying to get some more partnerships and stuff. So this is very basic. Think of what's not taught in the American classroom. This is very much the first time a lot of people will hear about this or hear about Romanian stuff. So um, if we could start by just setting the groundwork, can can you get started by telling us a little bit about yourself? What's your name? Where do you live right now? What do you do? And what was your childhood? Where are we going to get started in this story? Sure, no problem. Uh, So my name is Juana Trian. Uh, My name is spelled O-O-A-N-A, and it's a very old Romanian name. Um, my mother, uh, is Hungarian and you interviewed her and, um, I was born in New Jersey and I'm 43 and I moved, uh, I moved to New York city in 1996 to go to NYU school of the arts. And it was, a, I kind of, uh, I think I gave my parents a heart attack because I, it was the only place I wanted to go to college. And so I applied early and when they asked me where else are you applying? I said, nowhere. Um, so, um, and so I came here in 1996 and, uh, I've lived in New York city ever since, uh, my family also used to, we used to have a home in Fire Island as well, which is a small community, um, beach community, but my father started a newspaper out there and my mother actually ran it for a number of years, my childhood. So, uh, you know, I'm an only child. My mother is Hungarian, obviously it was a very heavy accent. Um, and I still remember my mother learning English when I was really little. Um, and so I would say that one of the things that was interesting growing up is, and I really only became more aware of it now in the last, especially during the last administration is, is really when I think I became acutely aware of the way that a lot of people look at Eastern European immigrants. I had never thought about it before really, but you know, I, I, know, I knew my mom had sort of had some moments and growing up in the suburbs, she always wanted to move to New York City, but there was, there is absolutely a bizarre sort of form of, I, it's almost a, it's almost a xenophobia, if that makes any sense. Like, especially as, here's the odd part, especially about other women, if you, you know, so, so here's the strength, like or dislike, you know, the last president doesn't, it's irrelevant really. The way that Melania was treated was pretty abhorrent. You know, it was very strange. And, and I became very much, I mean, you, you know, my mom, you could hear her voice. You could probably imagine when she was younger, she has some of this, some similar mannerisms. And uh, I was, uh, I found myself often, you know, defending Melania. I mean, it was just this like this sense of, you know, my mom speaks nine languages, right? And, you know, I, her, you know, the way she carried herself, carries herself, there's, a, there's some similarities there. And also the sense of like, these women, you know, Hungarian women, Eastern, if they want to leave or go somewhere, they do it. Like, it's not a, there's no, there's no blink if you need it. You know, it's, it's, none of that's, I mean, as, as women, I think it's, it can be a little bit daunting when we see that these girls can, I guess I could say the mean girl thing doesn't really end once you, I'm sorry to say kids, in many cases it does. Please try to grow out of it if you're a mean girl. Please do. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, and we, we, we do us all a big favor. But um, so I used to go back and forth also to Romania as a child when it was still under the Soviets. So I was that, I, I had a really unique experience in that way because there was very few people could go, were going to Romania or going to Eastern Europe at all under the Soviets. But my grandmother was there and my uncle. So 
I have some very, it's interesting because the memories I have of it are very much obviously through the eyes of a child, but there's one, there's one story that I, I mean, I used to tell stories all the time, um, especially on social media, whenever people would get really upset or worried about the country, you know, if the people were having a, you know, coronary because of who the president was, you know, it's, to me, that was kind of quaint, I guess, because one of the things, and, and this has been a very difficult thing to kind of realize is that um, there's a story and I actually, I, I also, I tell a longer version of it on my YouTube channel, it's like, and I, but I used to tell this story just in print every once in a while as a, as a reassurance. I never quite figured out how to tell it now as a warning, which is a, a, it's like a really strange pivot that has to happen. And I didn't start you know, recording any of these things until all this stuff began in, in, you know, really in June when, when the, um, the violence began in New York. Um, and the story, it's about a playground. And so, you know, in Bucharest, the, there was a playground really close to my grandma's house. And I, I loved playgrounds when I was a kid. I was a playground playground, I loved them. But this playground was really, this is where all the kids that I, I used to see regularly, you know, whenever I would come back to Romania, you know, you know it's, it's, imagine it's like going to camp, right? You'd come back and then suddenly you have to figure out who's who because people grow up and, you know, things like that. And I get to this playground this one year and everybody's standing around in a circle. And there's a bunch of debris in, in the middle because there was a place that it, like, they'd just done some, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I, I want to say architecture, but that's not the word. <laughs> Building, basically. They, they, you know, done some stuff over there. So there was some, but it was not so bad that we couldn't, all come together and like clean it up pretty quickly. So we're standing in the circle. And I remember I just said to them, and you know, I used to be fluent in Romanian at the time. And I said, you know, pay attention, like, pay attention. Like, let's, let's clean this up, let's do it. And nobody moved. And I remember thinking as a kid, like they don't like me anymore or they don't want to play with me, whatever. But these, you know, the parents are holding these little kids' hands and there's this look on their faces. And I'd seen this kind of expression before. Like I saw this expression when my uncle used to have to turn off the engine to the car whenever we came to a red light. And I once asked him why, and he got very quick, like he was a very warm, sweet man. And so he was like, there is no reason. We have to stop. It doesn't save the gas. It's not good for the car, but we have to do it. Like, just like that. Like, it was this weird moment where I realized that asking somebody something when there is no real answer, it's, I now understand this. It, it, it's, it's, it hurts your, your, your sense of self. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? Well, I, I, it reminds me of what we're doing today, whether it's law enforcement yeah. where they're forcing us to comply with these ridiculous things and they're just following yep. orders or people that when they're asked questions about science, the answers yep. don't exactly make sense, but they keep pushing these talking points that still don't make any sense. It's very fascinating. That's what my mind well, went to well, immediately. Of course. I mean, I'm in New York city, right? So you can imagine, I mean, and, and I mean, I'll touch on that in a second, but you know, Solzhenitsyn wrote Live Not By Lies, this essay, that I would say that um, when all this, all the mandates and all the pandemic stuff began, I, I actually printed it out and I, was, I had it kind of pinned on my wall, which is a very strange thing, but I kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it because I somehow instinctively knew, remembering that kind of stuff that was going on in the, in, sorry, I didn't finish the playground story. So when I asked everybody to help, at one point, one, I can't remember if it was a mother or father. She just, they looked at me and just said, Newport, 
which means we, we can't, but we mustn't also. It's kind of the thing. And I saw this look in their eyes and they were afraid, like seriously afraid, which I, I was years later that I really asked my parents about it. But I just remember leaving that playground and having this awful feeling of just seeing people that they could physically fix something in front of them. They physically could do it. It's like, it's like, the, it's like a perverse version of Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand, right? It's, it's you know, it, and I experience this now, like we could go, we could have, you know, during like, we could have left the house or we could have gone to have kids go to school. Like these are things we would be able to, could have gone to a store, could take off a mask, could, you know, in my case, could go into a museum not too long ago and now I can't. You know, these, these weird things that start to happen. And I later learned that the reason that they weren't moving at all is that, is that there was a, it would have been considered an organized event. Basically, they could have been arrested just for doing that. Just for cleaning up the park together. That could have gotten them arrested. And when you think about that, you know, and I, and I suddenly had these flashbacks to like, I remember some people were cleaning up something in San Francisco once. And these people were actually complaining that they were taking somebody else's job. And that's part of it too. See, that's, I mean, how do I put, it's just occurred to me. That's what the pursuit of happiness is really all about. It's not the accomplishment. It's not, it's not happiness. The pursuit is what is the most people i don't think people understand that that, that it is um that there's a value in that and that there's a reason why these things create you know whether we want to talk about wealth or not if we talk about just the wealth of creativity that came comes out of this country and, and how remarkable it is especially if you mentioned china right you know china can have all these successes but they, they can't they have they struggle with creative invention they just they do because you can't have that mindset unless you are in a country that has freedom i agree well i i always think one of my favorite quotes is um from the federalist from alexander hamilton when he wrote oh, yeah, his and he said the constitution is the greatest way to guarantee your liberty your dignity and your happiness and i think our dignity is really taking a hit these days, our pursuit of happiness, our ability to pursue happiness is taking a hit. And it's a real shame. And so that's why I'm happy to be interviewing you because you can be that connection between the past because of your family's history and the present. And it's really unprecedented. To any, you know, any person who wants to try to understand how to tackle what's going on. And I would say just curiosity, whether any age group, adult, child, live not by lies by Sultanitsyn is an incredible place to start because he gives actual pragmatic practical advice one of my favorite um sentences from it is uh the lies the lies pervade everything the lies corrupt everything but not with any help from me which is a terrific thing and you know you mentioned hamilton and so i was a i'm i'm a i'm a proud geek like i'm a total nerd and I was a member of the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society long before Hamilton was cool. Well, yeah. So <laughs> my father took me to Weehawken and all that. So I, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I was very fortunate. So, I, I mean, I, I came to New York for, to study the arts and study theater specifically. I'm not an actor. It was really my, I'm a little bit too much of an academic kind of person, I think, to have, have played. I've only started performing now because you know 43 who cares <laughs> like it's not like i'm trying to get on you know, get an oscar um i just really i think it's actually i think a lot of artists when all this started we, we can't stop making things like i just i can't stop i don't know what it is um but 
I remember I got to see Hamilton very early on in the, in the production. And I know there's a lot of people's talk about the show. I, I will say, and I am a very picky person about it. it is an exceptional, exceptional play. Like not just good, exceptional. And I was lucky that you got to see it before. It was a big deal. And I'll never forget, you know, I actually cried because of um, him, you know, my favorite, my absolute favorite founding document is, is George Washington's Farewell Address, which was written by Hamilton. Um, so there's this scene in it when George, like the, the way they talk about George Washington stepping down and, and the, the, the way that they interpret it is we're gonna teach them how to say goodbye, which is, a, I think a beautiful sentiment, first of all, because if you think about that, I mean, clearly we haven't quite mastered that yet again. <laughs> like, and, I, and, I, and I'm not even talking about those, I'm talking about ones before. <laughs> like it's this weird, um, weird phenomenon in that way. But um, I think you know what I mean. Um, and you know, and our country was never meant to have this sort of you know obsession with our government. We were never supposed to trust our government. We're not really we're supposed to trust our principles. And you know, and George Washington's stuff is so gorgeous. So I'm sitting there in the theater, I'm bawling my eyes out. You know, as Hamilton's uh, you know uh, words are being you know put into music and some of the other songs that are so beautiful. And there's this one moment where he says the, the lyrics are. The group of them are, you know, beginning of the revolution. They're saying, you know, raise a glass to freedom, something they can never take away, no matter what they tell you. Fast forward to today. I can't go into that theater. I couldn't go see Hamilton if I wanted to. I wanted to go. I can't go into a theater. I can't go into a museum. And I'm an artist. I went to Tisch School of the Arts. You know, I've been in New York this long. I wouldn't be able to go into the 9-11 Memorial Museum and I lost a friend on 9-11. I mean, there's so many things that are going on that to me are reminiscent of the last century, both, both national socialism as being Jewish, but also what happened in my grandfather and what happened under the Bolsheviks to, to many people as well. That suddenly it's just determined that you are less than human. You are not even hate is contempt. Contempt is worse than hate. You know, it, it, it's um, contempt is like, you know, you can't even bother hating something. You know, you know, there's, you know what, what is it? And, and I've been feeling this like progress over the last month as the mandates went in. And I'll tell you, it's, it is the most terrifying experience I've ever had in, in many ways because when the mandate went into effect and I have this letter from the doctor and he's Romanian too, by the way which is funny. Like he actually, he actually went to the, he went to the medical school that my great grandfather built. Like that's kind wow. of a, yeah. And so, um, you know, I did, I did overhear my mom talking about she's only, you know, 15% of what she would have been. And I'll say that, you know, I'm only here because my grandfather's not. And I know that. And I'm only 15% of what he was, you know, he was an amazing, you know, what they were more than anything. And I, and I say this, I know you're, you're in Texas, right? Yeah. I'm from Texas. Right. So wherever, you know, people are in the States, I would say that if it could be done happening to me, there's as, as much as we do have federalism and I, and I you know states rights, but one election away from having it happen to you. And so I'm fighting hard, you know, and, and one of the reasons I, I wouldn't have left, I, I haven't left, I hadn't left by this point is somewhere well, I'm not going to leave my, my mother who survived that world to this world, like I can't do it. 
if you for for anybody who's not familiar with you know the last century and you know well you know all of the various forms of terrible terrible leadership that people are like you know being kind of in this vice grip between Stalin and, and and you know Hitler and then Mao and you know all these unbelievably um, I mean five hundred million is I think was the last count and that's that's how many people I think have died total from between, I think that's between Mao and Stalin, or maybe, maybe it's even lower than, higher than that. I don't even know anymore. But at a certain point, how do you even quantify that? You know, like, and so that's one of the things that I always end up kind of wondering, you know, all this talk about equity, right? The only thing I think that you could do equitably, truly, is die. I hate to say it that way. And I, and I, and I don't mean to be dark and I don't mean to scare kids, like, but I'll tell you that for anybody who's, you know, learning about this stuff now, you know, my, my generation didn't learn about this stuff, even though I learned a lot from my parents. And I don't think that was a bug. I think that was a feature. Does that make no, sense? That's what I'm kind of curious about. So you had your firsthand experiences that were told to you by your, by your mom. And my own experiences of going to Romania. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I, what was that like going to the American education system? What did, what were they saying about well, what happened in the a, 20th century versus what your parents were saying? I was very lucky. This is one of the things I, so my mother, because of, you know, talking about education and things like that, I, you know, when she was talking about it. So I was in third grade in public school and my father, you know, I, I grew up actually, you know, the Tony Soprano's hometown. That's where I grew up. So my, yeah, in an old, much older house, but that's like, that's North Caldwell is where I grew up. So small town, you know, good school system. One day, uh, my parents were taking a trip to London and said they were going to bring me along and it was over Thanksgiving break. And so there was a couple extra days that, you know, I was, I requested if I could have a couple extra days off of school and they said, yes, but they gave me an assignment. And I told my mom that. And so when we're in the plane, my mom says, you know, want to just do your homework now. And I said, okay, I grabbed my notebook write a line, close it, put it away. Did you do your homework? So I did it. Says, how could you have done it so fast? What was your homework? I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I did it. I said, open the book, shoulder the page. And I, she said, well, what was the assignment one? I said, they asked me how the British celebrate Thanksgiving. They don't. That was all I did. I mean, what else are you going to say? Right. And so my mom saw that and that was it. I was being removed from public school. That was fourth grade. I was in private. <laughs> I, I was uh, that. She applied, you know, I was, she put me you to, know, I, I remember, I, I, so I applied to uh, quite a few different, you know, private schools. And I mean, I still remember, you know, because my mother, to her, you know, education was, is, if you think about, I think she may have told you that she got a, 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 a language teacher every birthday and she just wanted a bicycle. That's how she ended up with nine languages like you know my grandfather i don't know whether it was 14 or 16 i don't even i don't even know but see the, the thing that people don't understand is that yes for sure there were some people who were you know he was a he was a lot of people don't know there was such a thing as jewish nobility under the Habsburgs. like they don't know that you know and a lot of jews don't even know that but um he was a baron and you know came from like his family was titled but one of the things is is that being wealthy and like being noble, like it's gonna sound a little hokey, and I don't usually believe I'm, I don't usually say this. There was a period of time where being noble meant something. 
Like you meant you were being, you were expected to behave nobly. Now, not everybody did, of course, but not, I mean, now we've just got a very strange bunch of very wealthy oligarchs that aren't really noble at all. So it's like, you know, but in this case, you know, my mom once said that money's only good for one thing. It's to enjoy all the freedom money can't buy, but also it's comes with a responsibility. So they would be building theaters, hospitals, um, and they're part of, you know, I mean, education was a huge part of that. You know, having a well-rounded, um, thorough education where, because it was expected, like somebody, knowledge isn't, you know, if you don't have to be working eight hours a day, you know, doing hard labor, if you're just sitting there doing nothing, you're an asshole. <laughs> like, I mean, if you think about it, and I, and I, I mean, trust me, I would, I would love to, you know, be wealthy enough that all I could do is just be, you know, thinking all the time and, you know, coming up and writing and I'm like, I wish I could, but a lot of times now it seems that we've got a, we've got a whole generation of people that have that and they waste a lot of their time being pretty petty and pretty snarky, you know, but that was what, you know, then so my mother comes from that world. And so I started private school in fourth grade and I will tell you my fourth grade was the hardest year I've ever had because it was really a lot of transition. And I mean, most kids like should have repeated the grade and I didn't. And, and, and all, the, the lower campus of where I went to school, it was like that at the time that was like, it was like discipline and training you. So that, I mean, I never had more homework than I did in fourth grade. <laughs> I'm not even saying that we had a little, I mean, it was just a lot, like it was intense. But then after that, everything starts getting easy. And I mean, that's, that's the truth. So like for me, college academically, it was easy. It becomes easy because we, you just, you, you get used to these things and you learn how to do certain things. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I don't think it's the same anymore, unfortunately, where it is. And I think there's a lot of schools, like even I've been hearing crazy things going on with CRT in um, private schools all over the place. And so I, I, I don't think that they're immune, but my experience was that I had a very good education. I mean, there's holes in it, but it, there was nothing, there was no, I never went through an indoctrination of any kind. In fact, the only exposure I ever had was when I went to college and I went to an art school, I went to NYU. You'd think that I would have been like, you know, bouncing off of, you know, Revcom and like, you know, and the way it is now, right? I wouldn't yeah, have been because it's really there. bad, even in I private know. schools uh, I in the, where ta- I, I think a lot of parents think, OK, as long as I get my kid out of public school, I'm going to be good. As long as I pay a little bit of attention to their curriculum, it's like, no, you have to watch the curriculum. Now you have to make sure that even the private school oh teachers, when you're paying out of your pocket for these teachers, not just your yes. taxes or charter schools, oh, even it's yes. Catholic oh, schools, it's Christian schools. Is I've it, seen it, it all over all the based place. On the, whoever the administration is, I mean, my, my the headmaster that was at my school when I was there was amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when the new one came in and then another one, and then suddenly, I mean, look, I think part of it was that people, you know, oh, progressive education sounds like, this sounds great. You know, all the unity, like these, these, here's the thing is that I don't think, unfortunately or fortunately that, you know, for parents who really want their kids to succeed. And I think, and I, and I say this not in the sense of like going to a great, one thing that I think is terrific is I don't think that people are going to be just looking at great, like studying towards Ivy League education anymore. I mean, it, it, to me, it's really, it was never that huge of a deal only because I knew, you know, when you, when it's something that you can, you're not, I knew that 
wherever I really wanted to go, I would be able to figure it out. I mean, that was, and maybe that was deranged, but that was just the way I looked at it. Like, I just felt very confident about it. I mean, I, I, it was, it was easy. Like, I mean, maybe too easy. Maybe I didn't challenge myself. I don't know, but I'll say that I was, I had exceptional teachers that taught me, first of all, like how to learn, like how to learn, you know, it doesn't mean I'm, I've always right. Just, I like learning. I like, I remember the first time I didn't know how to, I was, you know, mystic something. And I had no idea what I was looking at. I had a test the next day and it was, it was the, it was the, uh, uh Krebs cycle, the Krebs cycle. And I was like, it was Greek. And I remember looking and staring at it for like three hours and it all came together. It was like, I saw the parts moving and it felt something I never forgot because it felt so good to know that I could do that. And being wrong was no, that wasn't the end of the world. Getting a D wasn't the end of the world. What, what, what mattered was how was I learning? Was I, was, was it, was it right? You know? And so when I went to NYU, I brought that mindset with me. And so it was pretty funny. I was the weirdo that my first uh, two weeks short of my first semester, I went to the head of the department and I told them that a teacher threw a book at my head, which they did. And I got all my money back because I was not paying for that. And I know how that sounds to me that just made sense. Like I am, I, that's the thing I think with one thing that happens with when I went to private school, we were not, we are, we're not rich at all. It was a struggle to go. I knew that I was paying for my education and you know, why would I, why would I pay a teacher to throw a book at my head? Because they thought that doll's house was three acts when it was only two. Like think about that. Well, and that's why a lot of people are worried about detaching the payment for an education for schooling, especially by having like student loan forgiveness in America or free college for all. Exactly it completely right. removes your desire oh. to make sure that you're getting a quality education, the desire for you to yes. care that you're making yes. a good investment. And it, also, it also removes the incentive from the people who are the educators and the administrators because they're, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I really do think that one of the, like the, the things that kind of, and, and I, I never used to speak quite this, I'm going to sound arrogant, snotty, you know, um, like, especially to a young person, I'm going to sound like I'm being, um, that I'm not seeing nuance. And you know what, I would say, you're absolutely right. I'm not seeing nuance with what I'm about to say, but there's a reason for it. And the reason for it is that you're like, I look at teachers and I look at education, like it is, if you have a good teacher, it is, it's, changes your life if you have a bad teacher it changes your life and so I never I mean I could recognize the difference I wasn't a, a brat I wasn't you know I wanted a good education but if there was a teacher that was not that was mediocre or less than mediocre I wouldn't tolerate it even back then I mean it, it was the one place where I was very confident in this even before I would be confident in anything else I mean I I was the pain in the neck that if I went into a we had this uh, English requirement, you know, we're writing requirement, but I'd already gotten, you know, done very well in my APs and I'd done really well in SATs. And I just, I found the writing to be, I, to pay for something where I'm asked to write an introductory three bodies and a conclusion. I'm like, I'm not, I shouldn't pay for that. And I actually one complaint and I got another teacher that was still, I had to do the requirement, but it was interesting because even just doing that, I suddenly was placed in a class with uh, some people. I mean, I still remember it was the first time I ever met a woman that she was so brilliant. It was, I was, I, I, would, I was blown away. Like how, what a great writer she was and how talented she was. 
And I was like, oh, I gotta be her friend. You know? <laughs> and, and that was kind of the way these things started for me with school. And then um, the one time I ever had what would have been indoctrination, 100% would have been. Because I, so I was studying experimental theater and classical. So, and I you know, had a minor and a major, but another major, but think about that. Like by all accounts, I should have been like waiting, like neck, like high in Foucault and Derrida. And like, I mean, that's what it would sound like to me now, but I wasn't. And the first time I ever encountered like a critical theory class, which was, it was supposed to be a postmodern art class, which is different than the philosophy. And everyone was clamoring over each other to take this class because when we were going to be graduating, postmodern art was going to be our bread and butter. The Simpsons, you know, uh, Rick and Morty, like all the stuff that was coming out, which is just one of the tricks to understand just when somebody talks about the art form, it's, it's self-referential. So like Deadpool, you know, like memes, right? So that's what I was expecting, but the teacher was gone because they had to go on sabbatical and it was taken over by TA. And this course that was, you know, everyone wanted to be there, this massive lecture very quickly deteriorated into a seminar. And I normally would have left, but there was this weird moment I had where I'm starting to realize that this person is going to try to tell me, instead of talking about art, like that there's the patriarchy. Like, what the hell does that have to do with what I'm doing? Like, are you kidding me? I mean, plus my mom's Hungarian and her mother was a lawyer and her mother's mother was a lawyer. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I mean, I granted, I, it's the toughest time I've ever had being a woman is actually now. It's weird, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I would say that there's stuff we have to, for the first time ever, we have to seriously be concerned about. But back then, so I'm sitting in there and I, I realize I look at this teacher and I remember thinking to myself, I want to get an A, even though she hates me. That's my goal. And it was like, mission. And I did. And I had fun. And I like would, you know, pull out you know, confidently saying, no, Judith Butler is a terrible writer. Well, how could you say that? Because she is <laughs> like, it's just, but that's the thing that comes like, if you can be fortified, this is what's so sad, I think right now, and what's so scary, but also what a huge opportunity because right now we can actually say, all right, let's, you know, kids can be fortified that it doesn't matter who they come across. It doesn't matter if they, if they know if they're, they, they both have the humility and the patience and the, and the self, like self-reliance, like Emersonian level self-reliance to kind of know what they're, who they are and what they, you know, what they're talking about, then none of that stuff will touch them. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Like self-reliance, when we talk about just why socialism yeah. is so bad in the first place, yeah. I, I like to touch on the fact that so many conservatives, we've been so quick to say socialism. Oh, you mean like or not a lot of options and products, all these things of, oh, very expensive goods. That's not good. And I'm like, no, what's really dangerous. But what you said, you realize like, it's not, it's not about goods and choices and goods and services so much as, but it's yeah. you're, the bigger, the bigger issue with socialism is that it creates a reliance. You're now reliant on the state. You're reliant on the government and they right. can take away that thing, whatever they're providing, the food, it's the healthcare, scary. the shelter, any moment. Absolutely. And listen, I had never believed this until I'm experiencing it because of the situation that I'm in and I just struggle and fight against it. It's a really bizarre, and that's one of the reasons I've become very non-nuanced. Yeah. And it is now, what very, I'm kind of curious, 
What I'm curious about, you were talking about like we can fortify our kids. A lot of people will come to me and say, we've got to fix our colleges. That'll save our children. And I say, no, the problem is they're going to college with no fortification. And so they fall for those lies really easily. 100%. Gotta fortify them. Elementary, middle school. And also building parallel poly, like Vaclav Havel talked about parallel structures. Like, so I will say this, and and, and this might get me in a lot of trouble, but if we look at, now don't, don't miss, like I... I will be deferential towards you know intellectuals that that are that are not that that earned it or, or should have it. Like I, I will default to assuming like I'm not a cynical person. That's another thing. Cynicism, like I'm 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 what's called a zenial. Like we were the most optimistic generation. Like we were just you know like Whoa! <laughs> you know. So I still have it. And I mean, cynicism is 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 really dangerous, especially in, in times when things are tough. It really. Is. So I'm not being cynical, but. I don't have patience for intellectuals who are who don't behave with honor and character. I just I just don't, because what we need to remember, and this is stuff that you know, learning history and learning and understanding a lot of these things, and also learning how to learn includes starting to have a sort of an instinct for when something is not just propaganda that's taught by the state, but propaganda that's taught by your own social circle, right? So. I'm in a weird position, a little interesting position. So I'm Jewish and my grandfather was killed by Stalin. So I've heard it all. And I will say sometimes that it's, it's tricky because people don't understand, you know, even I, when I say talk about Bolshevism, I get nervous for anime cleaning, why am I even not wanting to utter that? And it's really because we have such, a, we have done such a lousy job explaining that none of these things, I mean, if, if we think about how complicated the world is, in what universe would Hitler, Stalin, World War II, especially post-Wilson, sorry, <laughs> post-Wilson, I have a thing about Wilson, sorry, it's my little, <laughs> but in what world would that be simple? It's not, it's not binary. That's another thing is we live in a very binary, I think, world now, and it's, now, what I'm curious, you hear a lot of American leftists today that will give credit to the USSR and the Bolsheviks for fighting the Nazis and defeating oh the Nazis. What are your a thoughts lot. on that as a Jewish person that had a grandfather Driving killed by Stalin? Crazy, actually. So, I mean, I was like, I'm so much crazy that I need a little little nicotine to talk about it. Um, sorry, uh, especially right now. Um, it's fine. So, the reason it's hard for me is that what I hear when somebody says that, because so, so there's two devils in this game. Like, you know, there's two, you know, Hitler was a terrible person and Stalin was a terrible person. And I say this, there are, there are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that would lean towards that he was actually much worse, much worse. Now, the thing is, I say this is that first of all, Hitler was defeated, right? But second of all, we have to remember that Hitler and Stalin were actually allied. They were in partnership. They were planning to invade Poland together. And when that didn't happen, because Hitler decided that, you know, a Slav was, you know, because Hitler was practicing a racial socialism, you know, that we needed a homogeneous identity. Like that was, the, that was, the, the, all we're trying to get to that same place, but each, you know, like China in many ways is very much national socialism now too. There's a homogeneous society, very much based on, you know, you know, the, it's, when I, there was really not that much of a distinction. And so 
the thing is, is that people will say, well, you know, because he didn't, you know, own, you know, take over the means of production. That's essentially applying one view of socialism and communism, not the goal of socialism and communism. I mean, there was socialism before Marx, you know, it, it, there's, there's this misconception, I mean, especially amongst Marxists, Marxists like to pretend that everything begins and ends with them. Like, that's just, kind of Americans are like that too, but whatever it is, is, it wasn't only Stalin that defeated, you know, Hitler. It was, it was all of the allies, but also if I'm gonna talk about it strictly from the perspective of a Jew, there was a lot of chances we had to do something, to stop it, to, you know, get rid of it. We, people knew where the train tracks were going. Hungary wasn't, so my family's Hungarian, in, in 1944, was when the Hungarian Jews were taken and they killed over three to 400,000 of them in three months. That's a lot, like that's a crazy amount of people, but it was toward the end. So there was how many years to try to, we can't say that people didn't know what was going on. So for me to, for me to delight in like, yay, Stalin, Stimson, Hitler, no, it doesn't work that way. Plus then there was Yalta. When Yalta went into place and we basically allowed this guy who, first of all, one of the reasons that Stalin, they lost so many people is Stalin and had no issue with forcing and, and, and you know, sending more and more troops to their death. Like no issue with it, it didn't, it didn't matter. So what do we say? He, he once said something like, a certain amount is a, is a, is a tragedy. Another one is statistic, mm -hmm. you know? Um, for them, I mean, when you, when, and also this is the other part. So, you know, you, when you think about the philosophies of these people, right? Hitler wanted people like me gone. They wanted us gone. And then eventually the final solution came about because they couldn't just put us all on Madagascar, right? Now, there's worse things than wanting somebody dead. It's wanting their entire being. That's what Stalin wanted. That's what the Bolsheviks want. They don't just want your uh, agreement, right? They want your mind. They want your. They want your agreement, not just your, like tacit agreement. Now, now, kind of thinking back to the the history of it all, I love how you know this. By the way, most people don't know a lot of this information, and it really hurts my heart to know that. But well, I'm I'm so thrilled that you know it. And like, like I mean, listen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm a little curious. So, did you? When did you start going over to Eastern Europe and, and oh, doing was, that as a child? I went to go see, when I went to Romania, I was, uh, first time, I think I was less than six months old. Oh, oh, so this so is right I was going my whole life. Like, and so when my mother earlier mentioned that I had a, like a dress thing from, you know, Charashescu, which I was like, okay, we're not going to understand this. So you have to understand that nothing is as simple as, you know, bad dictator and he's gone, everything's fine. It doesn't, it, it's not like that. And I mean, and Romania is actually, I think a, a remarkably interesting example of this. And it's something that a lot of people don't really know about, which is that my mother needed to have a good relationship with them so that her mother was safe. And even with that good relationship, there would be occasions where I, I, I would oftentimes think I must've said something on the phone that was bad in some way. The security was not happy and they would cut off my grandmother's hot water and heat because a kid said something on the phone, right? The, this is, so security was really like, you know, 
when Stalin took over Romania, I mean, Romania didn't have a communist party. So they, he, he just swept in and, you know, took, it was really intense. Um, the Securitate was vicious, like cruel, vicious. That's, um, and so, so what did they do? Were they like uh, a police force or the enforcers? Like secret police, everything. Secret police, like, okay. Torture, just pain, like, I'll put it honestly, if things keep going in this direction, that's like my, I have a friend who's Romanian. Um, he's on Twitter. In fact, I, I think uh, Emily's gonna be talking to him. He, he came here from Romania. He's saying, he, his opinion is that our intelligence communities are, is already secure Tate. I would argue against that only because what happened to my grandfather was so intense. You understand what I mean? Like he's also yeah. younger. So it's a little bit of a, if, if, if they were, we couldn't say this. Yeah. Well, and that's what really shocks me when I interview people from Cuba and Venezuela, especially, they will tell me they have PTSD when they see the the burning and the rioting and the looting of Antifa and Black Lives Matter, because it reminds them of like the Chavistas and the Collectivos. Oh, listen, this sounds weird. I I now realize that there is such a thing as generational trauma. I know there is. Like, I never thought it before. But, you know, one of the reasons I, I wouldn't leave here is, you know, my parents live on the 27th floor of an apartment. I'm a few blocks away. My block was looted. I heard it. You know, I the I never started posting on Twitter until an NYU professor actually was defending the looting, claiming that oh she said something like oh and Soho is not really part of New York City anyway. And I'm in New York. I'm so, I, listen. I would here for nine I was like so so really uh, let me let me try to understand this. The, the moment that the artists, you know, didn't, you know, invite you, I, I should have said this part I didn't say, but they didn't invite, didn't invite you to their parties. Suddenly Soho is no longer part of New York because what, you know, the bourgeois gets to decide who's the proletariat now. Like, I mean, these, that's the thing about these people that's really drives me crazy because I used to, I've met in Europe, I met some people who I, were ideological communists, but sorry, that were philosophical communists, like but not ideological comments. So they could say, you know, I, it's a belief system, but I see where it can't work and why it can't work. And usually one of the things I always remember hearing some say was um, the new man paradox is what they would call it, which is something that almost nobody knows what that is. No one knows what it, the Soviet new man is. No one understands that there's a version of this stuff where, which is so insidious, is that it cannot, the, the, the belief is that man, it's almost like original sin. It's, it's really weird. You know what I'm talking about, right? That man is not capable of like, like here's, you know, we promise you communists, but you gotta be dead for it. And then like the whole thing is ushering, like the struggle sessions, all those struggle sessions, that is part of creating the new man. That's what's so Freaky. And I mean, I mean, there's a lot of that happening. I see it whenever we see this stuff happening now where I'm treated like I'm not an individual or I hear some, you know, people who have that philosophy thing that they don't believe that consciousness exists. I mean, obviously communists don't believe in God. Okay, fine. We know that. But when you get to the point where they don't believe in consciousness, that they don't believe in an individual, they, they won't believe in anything divine about it. There were like a block of wood. That gets a little scary. But I'll tell you, what my experience right now will tell you, yep, that's exactly what they believe because I'm being treated that way. I'm being treated like, like there's no cost in denying a person who loves the art so much 
the opportunity to be part of art. Like, think about what I mean by that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, a, yeah, it's, 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 there's a it's bad judgment. Well, I'm glad that you put that twist on it of art. I, I was speaking at a charter school in Colorado um, for this youth leadership program they have. And this girl raised her hand and she said, I don't know much about any of this. What I've learned of socialism and communism is pretty much from you right now, but I hear from my friends that are the artsy kinds and they're the more liberal and lefty kinds on campus and at my school. And they, they say that it's the left that is going to be more welcoming to artists and to the creative types. But from what I hear about history, that's not really the case. Is that going to be the case for me or would I even be able to find employment? And what was cool is the woman next to me, she came from communist China and she could personally say, well, yeah, there are going to be some art jobs for you, but it will be creating propaganda. It will be helping the CCP create art that changes people's minds. It will be making commercials and propaganda films. That's what you're going to get to do. I mean, if you look at Iway, like if you look at the artists, this is a thing that's actually really interesting to me about it. So first of all, I mean, and the only reason I ever kind of, I think it's one of the things that's really important for people who are not on the left to start to, and and I say this with the hope that people understand why I'm saying this is that, you know, Mao wrote that essay called Combating Liberalism. All right, it's a one-page essay. In that essay, he basically tries to defeat liberals. So why would he want to defeat liberalism if he's a liberal? Because they're not liberal at all. No, they're illiberal. So the word has been co-opted, you know. And so every time we say liberal, so for one thing, it's because they're illiberal. They aren't good for artists because I, you need a you you need liberalism in the truest classical sense, like in the in the sense of the like classical liberalism, right? But it, but in the thing that ushered in. Because liberalism really did usher in, I mean, everything that, you know, founding of our country, all of that stuff came from liberalism. Like liberalism, not in the the way that people hear it, like when they say, oh, liberal, what they're actually saying is, in my opinion, is radical collectivist. Because the the liberal requires the the autonomy of the individual, right? It requires like, if if, I always put it like this, maybe I was thinking about this recently. The, The collectivists, like the radical collectivists, they will say that, we should cooperate because we should both view each other as equals. And if we cooperate, then we're going to accomplish something through co- cooperation. Uh, a liberal, like a true, true liberal would say, no, 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 no. Let's collaborate. We acknowledge each other as individuals and respect each other's individuality. And then from that will come something that we can't even really quantify. You can't, that's, the, that's where the kind of like the magic happens, right? Does that make sense? Like you can- no. Absolutely. Well, that's, I always think of um, Sun Tzu, the art of war. He says, you have to understand yourself, but you also have to understand your enemy. And for me, I see it as when we group the liberals and the leftists and the woke people all in the same group, and we just call them the left, or we call them liberals, we call them crazy people, we're doing a huge disservice to our goal. And I would say our goal is to get people back on a foundation of classical liberalism and and economic independence, the way Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals have been on for centuries. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I get frustrated. I, I speak at a lot of older conferences so the the crowds are older and they want to know what the heck is going on with gen z and millennials and so i try to explain to them yes there are really radical people that actually want to seize the means of production they think that we're going to end capitalism and make some utopia even worse they want to destroy property 
Yeah, like like, like, they, they, the they really there. truly believe it. And then there's yeah. also these really naive but well-intentioned young people. And when we speak to those naive but well-intentioned young people that just are lacking basic information, we need to be talking to them about, hey, you're being lied to and you deserve the truth. Instead, that's, we're that's just being so rude to them and we're shoving them closer into the totally. arms of people well, like 100%. AOC. So we I have to be more efficient with our communication. And one of the things that I would hope, and I see it a little bit, but you know, in my generation, I used to joke and say in the nineties, I'd be like, the the right has the worst PR. I used to say it right. all the time. Because back then, if you remember, like it was a very different time. There was a radical Christian right that was, they were like the original woke. They were a pain in the ass. I'm telling you, real major pain. I The only protest I'd ever been involved in up until now trying to, make sure that I can go to the bathroom sometimes, you know, if I'm like, it's like, it's insane. Um, was there was a, there was a, a group that was protesting a play and they were, you know, it was radical Christian, right? They, they felt that the play was inappropriate and they, there was even bomb scares and stuff. Now, the thing is that, that what gets a little scary, what's, what's really weird is that the thing that the, the far left and the, like, I think that there's like, there is a woke right that doesn't realize it's woke, right? And there's a woke left, right? The thing they share in common is both of them will constantly defend censorship. And what is really challenging and wonderful, but it takes, it, you know, it's not easy. If it was like, like if liberalism was easy, everybody would do it, right? It's simple, but it's not easy. But it, it, it doesn't, easy doesn't mean good either, right? Is that you have to be able to, deal with what happens if something somebody says is, is something unpleasant or even dangerous. Like, what do you do with it next? What do you, what do, you do next? And there's this really bizarre, um, and, I, and, I, and I blame my generation, the older folks who I think got very protective after 9-11 maybe, I'm, I'm not sure what happened, but this whole safetyism and this idea of being safe and feeling safe and being, there is so much more to life than safe. I mean, I'm not saying people should get hurt, but if your aspiration is to feel safe, no, your aspiration, like I remember the, this guy, Nick Hudson, who runs uh, this organization called Pandata. Pan, Pandata. It's one of the first groups that was looking at the, the pandemic response and, you know, it was very much against the lockdowns, but it also from a quantifiable, like, you know, you can look at what, you know, they're saying. It's a great group. I would definitely recommend checking them out. But he recently did a, a spaces where he basically talked about being safe is about the least, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm interesting and also being happy he said this was interesting is about the least important thing to me too because i much rather be experienced curiosity than happiness I, I made a little video recently about this trying to find a way to talk about what's going on and I, I really realized as i was explaining a little bit about what it's like and trying to encourage artists there's an art to medicine there's an art to the sciences like arts and sciences they didn't always work like this they, there's a re liberalism kept them together you know I always encourage people, I may commentate on things and I may like to talk about things and we may bring guests on, but there's really nothing that can be better than you reading something for your own 
evaluation and then coming to your own thoughts about it. Like I used to listen, I'll be honest. I used to listen to Mark Levin every single morning and he would play the national anthem and then he would come on and be like, Hey, everybody has it going. And I'd get my three hours of him ranting. And then I would think that I know what I'm talking about. And then I really wouldn't have my own thoughts. And so I don't like to listen to people have their own opinions and then just use those. I like to just get the original source. And so reading our funding documents is such an important part of that. Oh gosh. And also not even, not even like, so like, one of the, like, the things that is, is a challenging essay for some people if they're not used to it, but the fact that it's challenging is actually perfect because self-reliance by Emerson. It's, it's you know, I, I used to tutor kids and there were some kids that, you know, it took us six months, some kids, you know, a couple of days. The ones, I remember this one guy, six months, he was in tears afterwards because it's about what it is about is, is being able to believe you can do that and doing it. And it's, it's funny, I was, I was thinking about this because like, I'm a big Shakespeare fan, right? And I have a pet peeve, though, because um, most people, unfortunately, like you get exposed to Shakespeare in, in English class, right? You made to read it, which it's not what's supposed to be. Little insight to everybody. It was never meant to be read. So if you didn't like reading Julius Caesar, you didn't like reading Hamlet, it's not your fault. You're right. So, so just you have to learn how to read it aloud or work with people on it. And, and that's okay, you know, um, and then it gets really good. actually, But um, Thing is, remember in Hamlet, he says, uh, Polonius says, to thine own self be true. And then it's then, then follows as the night, the day that can't be false to any man, right? The reason I do this is that if you read it out loud, like Polonius is a villain. Polonius is full of polemics. So we have a whole society where everybody's like, you know, my truth, be you know, your truth, right? But Emerson says, he says, trust thyself. It's very different. And to thine own self be true. Trust thyself. Like it's like the idea of being liberty versus liberation. Liberty is born free. Like liberty, liberation is something that has to be. Like it implies like, hey, slave, I'm going to liberate you now. More than anybody really. Is, is, some people in New York have been standing up and, and really fighting back. I think it's mostly because it's a little easier when you have seen certain things happen. Like, I mean, I think Jews used to be in that state of mind. I think Romanians definitely are in that state of mind now. That's why they don't follow the mandates anymore. That's, they dropped it all because of what happened to them in recent years. Um, documentary called The Collective, if anybody's curious, explains a lot about why now they were so, uh, nope, we're not doing this because they were, they're accustomed to seeing, they, they, it was their first glimpse at um, corruption in the health system and realizing that the Securitate had basically taken over their entire health system. And when, the, so if you know that can happen, being told that, you know, there's some corruption going on with this kind of like, yeah, and we're done, we're not doing this. <laughs> like, it's like, we've been there, we've done that. And nope, that confidence, that ability to, that ability to say, all right, I've seen this before. And, and that's something Americans weren't supposed to have. So mm, we better- you know, but we can fix it. I mean, that's the thing too, is that we can. If I believe we can, I believe now what I'm curious, we like to usually cut it out about an hour. And so if I think we have so much to talk about, I think you should come on again. I sure. my personal belief, if you're willing, I'll be honored. Uh, I'd be honored. Thank you. And thank you for the time on this. This is really special no insight. Um, what would, if you believe that this can be fixed, what would you say is a good action item, a, a good one final last thing that, that people can take away from this and, and bring positive change moving forward? Cause we're like, we like to be solutions oriented here. Absolutely. So I think, you know, listen, it's going back to Sultan Yitzin again, right? 
one of the things he says in Living Up by Lesnar, obviously, wherever you are, you can just choose, even if you don't say, you just choose not to say what you don't believe. That's huge. Now, when it comes to what we're dealing with now, which is basically, I call it totalitarian creep, right? And I mean, I like a lot that. of these, young, a lot of the idea that you are unable to talk about something, you're being pressured and coerced and you can't ask questions. It worries me a bit. But the thing that people I think can do is if they're worried and feeling like they're, they're not liking that they're feeling any sort of pressure, if they even have a little inkling of that, all you have to do is start practicing saying no. It's an, it's an amazing thing because I actually started making, I made these hats, which says no established 2021 because we don't <laughs> like, like, first of all, I think that a lot of, yeah, it's like a magic alpaca.com. I need that. I need that hat. Oh, <laughs> my pleasure. Oh, there's all, all different kinds. Absolutely. I, I like, I love them. Um, and so we'll, we'll go, we'll go through and look at it together and we'll, we'll, we'll figure out one, but uh, it's like classical, like kiss me on a classical liberal t-shirt too. Um, and, and made in the USA fortified in China. But basically, it was my way of, you know, it's like, I see your propaganda and I raise your propaganda. <laughs> like it's, but that's another thing too. So the, two things. One is practice saying no. And also realizing that no is actually, I think that uh, there's a whole generation of us that always wanted to make sure that people felt that they were, you know, able to try and like not being held back. But no is loving. And having a mother from Eastern Europe there might, your, your mother will not let any harm come to you. A lot of that stuff, and maybe if this time hadn't happened, it wouldn't have felt this way, but, sorry, I was, I was having a bit of a moment because of, of how different my mother's been sounding lately. Like um, even hearing her talking to you saying that sometimes she gets scared, that's a very new thing. Um, it makes me angry, I'll be honest with you. Like it's bad enough what happens to me, but my Edo Shanya, I'm like. Sorry. Um, me too, but um, you know, you know, there's a lot of us out there. There's, they, uh, when when we win, they will never be able to do this again. But no, and then also satire, make fun of it, art, it, these things like authenticity. By the way, as weird as that as the word sounds, it's kryptonite to these people. And but also humor. Like if you look at some of the the work that came out of like, Eugenie Ionescu. Um, the satirist, uh, learn the distinction between satire and parody. And that's really important right now. Learn, like, make, make, make jokes great again. Make jokes great again. Like being able to make fun of something, it's massively important, especially when things are so absurd because you have to be able to look at this and say, this is absurd and make fun of it because then it loses its power. So I if I that. can like, it's true. And then also another thing too is um, in a time where people will like, you know, cancel culture and all that pettiness and stuff, have the courage to, to, to just be the kind of friend you would want and, and be the kind of, because like that way you like building that sort of level of integrity and trust because in, in a place where you can't, I mean, it's one thing not to be able to trust your government. There's another thing to have this going on. Like this is nuts. And it, it makes us all feel very, but just, giving that a shot because i'll tell you right now you know i live alone i'm in new york everything that i know and like it's gone and i and it sounds really strange for me to put that even in my city and um it's been you know two, like it's long two years to you know, deal with this stuff the only thing that i would say that has kind of made it somewhat bearable is that i've said what am i waiting for to not you know just try 
And if I screw up, you know, I can't really get more embarrassed than I am <laughs> by like what's, I mean, it's something I have no control over. And then the only other thing too, is I would say, and this is the request too, which comes back to the no stuff. Don't buy the idea that America is gone or it's done or that you have to have, especially, you know, some states like the you're saying, we have to divide things up. It's, it's total hogwash. Well, you know, if the minute we choose to have, a, you know, the minute people realize that the <clears throat> boot on my neck is a boot on theirs, because that's what it, I mean, that's one of the things that gets weird. Like, how do you do individualism, but you also do collect? That's nation, that's what nation and, and unity and the union's about. Like, we, you choose, like, kind of like New York had this sort of meta community where we used to have this attitude, like, one for, you know, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, that thing that got screwed up a little bit. No one's more independent than New Yorkers but we were New Yorkers, right? Like Texas has that as well. There's a, it's the only other state I think that has that sort of, like New York, we were New Yorker before we were Americans, which is totally fine, like Texas. But, but um, it's really, if the moment that we as come together as Americans and stop buying all the BS that I'm telling you, I'm in New York, I worked at CNN and I'm telling you it's total freaking BS. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for this great hour. Uh, I think we've learned a yeah, lot and yeah. we would love to have you back on and Absolutely, we just really appreciate I, I to... Is there anything that you want us to be aware of or ways that we can connect um, with oh, you? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I did start doing a YouTube channel. Um, I'm getting all this. And so that most of the stuff on there is all about actually the stuff. Like I have some satire, which is I, I created a Covidian temple character. Covidian, she's a, she's very much part of the Church of Quarantology, Pathological. Exactly. Um, and um, she's a lot of fun and she's crazy. And so uh, that's something, yeah, she's, she's, she's very worried about the trans inoculates. They're, they're a major issue. Um, so there's that. And also in, in it, there's a, I decided to, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite short stories is actually Harrison Bertrand. And I recited, and I, and I don't always say, I very rarely say this, I did a darn good job with it. If you've never heard this story, it's an incredible story because in the very beginning it says the year is 2021 or 2023 20, or whatever it is, and everybody was finally equal. That's how it begins. And so, and it's a really incredible, dark, dystopic, you know, realizing it, it gets pretty dark very fast from there. It says, you know, they're, they're equal in every way, thanks to the handicapper general. You know, it's a very dystopic, but it's, it's very, it's about equity is what it is. It's by Kurt Vonnegut. So that would be something. And comment away and criticize away. And my DMs are open on Twitter, which is at O-O-A-N-A. And um, you never know an answer until you ask. Ask anything. All right. Well, we will definitely, we'll link all those things to, um, for them well, to be able to connect to you. I am looking for somebody who was interested in helping me compose a, uh, a song to uh, get a little viral stuff to, uh, to counteract those dancing nurse videos. So any oh, of you out there, ooh, I like that. If there's anybody, yeah, it's fun. So if there's anybody out there who wants to create a really fun, joyful, like, you know, think, think, think D Snyder's, uh, we're not going to take it or, you know, break out or any of that stuff, but new mixed with a little bit of, you know, uh, let's go Brandon, but not, you know, just a little mix and all of it. I'm looking for somebody. So get in touch. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. And definitely get in You're touch because I want a fun song like that. I mean, let's go, Brandon, really smashed the record. Oh, it's there. <laughs> That'd be great. My best part about it, honestly, is that it's, it is 100%. Like the first time I can think of it, the, the people are, there's no self-blame. It's just like, let's go, Brandon. Like, it's, like, it's, like, fun. it's totally, it's fantastic. For the first time, Americans are not like blaming, like self-flagellating for like what's going on. They're like, 
Right. No, but thank you so much. And we will you. have you on and again. Just, soon. I don't mind that lipstick of yours. I want that. I'll send it it's to you. Good. I'll send it to you. <laughs> okay. but thank you. Thank we'll you see girl. you later. Thank you so much. <laughs>